Hello, hello, hello. So, the big reveal. The bit that I've been working on so hard with clients on for the last little while, which I'm very excited to release, which is the launch of the brand new up-to-date female follow-ups program. So what makes this so, so different compared to anything else that you see out there from other coaches, other people? This has actually been created by clients. So... I spoke to a number of my one-to-one clients and my group coaching clients in the last little while and I sat down with them and had a meeting with them and had a call with them and kind of asked them what would they need or what did they want at the very beginning that they potentially didn't see from anyone else. So what they've gone and done in the background is they've created add-ons to what I already do. So if you're someone who's looking to finally lose all that weight, keep it off, banish the belly, understand that you can have your weekends have your drinks away have your meals away have your drinks out with the girls or the lads whatever it may be and break that all or nothing mindset so most approaches that you go for it all seems very very doable for the first few weeks and then you stop the wheels come off you start off very very confident and then something happens life ramps up one of the kids gets sick and then you're staring back at you and looking in the mirror again and you're looking at yourself putting yourself down you look at you start to pinch you start to look at everything else and you're looking for someone to aid you. You're looking for someone to guide you. But nothing ever happens. The scales never budge. You are losing confidence. You're losing motivation. You're losing determination. You get frustrated. You end up pressing the fuck up button, getting a takeaway, having a few drinks, eating more than you maybe need to. You decide to sit down and have a Netflix marathon and you end up getting about 1,200 steps in your day. You end up picking more food because you don't know how to deal with your emotions. You let things slide over a week or two and then you're back up into your old thing. You repeat that cycle over and over again and you're lost. You don't know what to do. You've tried everything. You've tried clean eating. You've tried low carb. You've tried fasting diets. You've tried keto. You've tried cutting out chocolate. You've tried every, you've tried every single insane thing that you've ever done. But this program is going to be different. This is now eight weeks of coaching where you get weekly check-ins. You have weekly lives with me on a Facebook group. You get your tailored calories. You've gym or home workouts. You are able to do this at any age. The workouts take anywhere between 30 minutes to an hour, depending on how quick you are doing them. It doesn't mean that you have to do endless amounts of prep. The simple thing that we focus on at the very beginning of each week is, have you got a shop in? That's easy. It doesn't mean endless amounts of cardio. It doesn't mean that you're cutting out any food group. It means that you're able to have chocolate and carbs every single day. You're getting rid of food fear. You're getting rid of that all or nothing mindset. And the biggest thing that I would say is that is the feedback that is coming back from the current female fat loss group and the current one-to-one clients. It's losing that food fear. It's losing that fear of undoing anything. It's losing that all or nothing mindset. So it can be done. Once you let go of that fear, life changes. Your mindset changes dropping restriction dropping those food rules that's what this program is for my job with this program is to make sure this is the last program you ever do that you are in a place that i'm going to give you all the secrets and the tips that you're able to go off on your own by at the end of it so what does it involve it involves you clicking on the button into in the show notes to book on your priority place it's eight weeks of coaching for 99 euro the old package was six weeks of coaching for 169. I brought it down for eight weeks coaching, so I've added another two weeks on for 99 euro. That's one euro 70 a day. 
that is half your cup of coffee if you live in Dublin or one of those fancy cities of your cup of coffee a day. It's one euro seventy. It's not a whole lot to get life-changing results, a life-changing mindset that's going to add to your life and the people around you. So if you're ready, click on the link below, book your spot. As soon as that number, as soon as the number gets hit on the amount of people that sign up, that link will shut down and you won't be able to come in. It starts on the 10th of April. So if you have a holiday, if you have something coming up in the summer, like getting married, it's perfect for you. It will get you the results that you can actually keep and maintain. There's recipe books, there's workouts, there's lives, there's Q&As with me, and there's weekly check-ins for accountability. And there's a like-minded group of a Facebook group that you can share things with, and everyone supports everyone. You don't have to share if you don't want, but you can if you want. It's support that a lot of people want. It's getting away from that all-or-nothing mindset, and that's what this is for. So if you're interested in working with me in the Female Fat Loss Program, starts on the 10th of April, 2023, 99 euro for, for eight weeks, which is year, 1 euro 70 a day. I'm keeping, it, I'm keeping it cheap and cheerful so everyone can join. So if you're interested, click on the link below, and I'm looking forward to working with you on the 10th of April. Hello, 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 and welcome to the next episode of the Shane Walsh Podcast. So today's guest is Menno Henselmans. So Menno is one of those people that I would look up to in the industry for all of the information that's out there. He's a reviewer in Cambridge University's Research Sci Society Mini HPD program. He is the founder of Henselmans Personal Training Certificate or PT course, featured in Men's Health, The Sunday Times, Huffington Post, and loads of different publications. His book, The Science of Self-Control, is, I think it's number 14, best-selling author on Amazon in applied psychology. He's an experienced physique coach, and we spoke an awful lot about different things in relation to things that can help and impact on someone on a fat loss or a weight loss journey. We talk about how important a role does actually instant gratification play when it comes to losing weight, why trying harder doesn't always work, how empty rewards can actually help you stick to your diet. Are meal plans useful or harmful for people? And there's a different angle that Menno puts onto it. And we talk about how to change bad eating habits as well. And we talk about how important the role of support is as well. It's an amazing episode if you're someone that's on maybe a fat loss or a weight loss diet. But it's also an amazing episode if you're a coach that's looking to learn about why clients do things the way they do things. So I really, really hope you've enjoyed this episode and do enjoy this episode of Menno Hanselmans. Menno, how are we, sir? Very good. Yes, how are you? Good. Thank you so much for coming on. I've been a big fan for a very, very long time and it's 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 great to, to have you on eventually. I know a few people may not be aware of what you are and what you do and stuff, but I think it's important for us to give some sort of context, some sort of background why we, we've got you on. So can you give us a little bit of a background to who you are, about your book and, and kind of the research that you do? Mm-hmm, sure. Yeah, I'm the author of The Science of Self-Control, which is, I think, where you want to uh, touch on some of topics related to diet, adherence and the like, which is in large part what the book is about. I'm an exercise scientist, exercise and nutrition scientist, and I specialize in my coaching, my PT courses, and uh, most of what I do in helping people get more muscular, stronger and leaner in a very psychologically sustainable manner. Wow, that's very uh it's very efficient. <laughs> um and what like what you said there about kind of like and kind of like we we're talking about an efficient manner and stuff like that, but it was very 
with weight loss and fat loss in particular, mm-hmm. which are kind of like, I think we've all been on diets per se or doing cuts or lean cuts or whatever it may be. How important a role does that whole thing of kind of instant gratification come into it when losing weight? Because I think a lot of people don't realize how big a driving factor this actually is. Yes, it's huge. If you logically think about the troubles that you have with a diet, then hunger is the root cause of all of those evils. Because if we didn't have hunger, there would be no desire for instant gratification because that's the thing with hunger, right? You want food now. You don't want food later. You want to satiate that negative emotion, which is hunger. Now, if you didn't have that sensation, then everything with your diet would purely be a matter of choice. You would just decide, oh, no, now I'm going to eat these foods instead of the other foods. And as a result, I'm going to get lean. So it would purely be a matter of knowledge and application rather than any psychological battle. Whereas in reality, what we see is that dieting is by and large a psychological battle. In research, we also see that hunger, which is part psychological, part physical, is one of the biggest predictors, and depending on which study you look at, often even the biggest predictor of uh, diets failing. So yes, it's dieting is, is very much a mental struggle, and hunger and the resultant need for instant gratification is a huge part of that. And the quicker you realize that your struggle is mental, the sooner you can start implementing effective strategies to address the real problems that you have. Because a lot of people, I think, are looking way too much into physical issues like, oh, I feel tired. Maybe I didn't consume enough carbohydrates at lunch. It's like, no, that's not the issue. Things like that can play a small role, but by and large, Fatigue, for example, has so many mental factors, and often it's not even related to dieting at all. Like, first thing I often ask is, how are you sleeping? And often, yeah, not so good. Well, okay, so you're tired, you're not sleeping well. I see an association there. Yeah, and then stress is the other one. Yes, definitely. Stress is the other one. But, like, with the mental struggles that you've kind of mentioned there, like, because what people then, there's the kind of negative attachment to that of, like, and you'll hear some coaches say this of like the client doesn't want it enough or they have no willpower, they have no desire. Now that's not a great angle to look at it. Mm-hmm. But how can people themselves kind of step away from that kind of blame shame cycle from that, that side of things in order to kind of actually realize it's not their fault. It's just a natural, natural occurrence. So what I teach my PTs, the PTs that I educate in my PT courses, and what I found to be exceptionally valuable in my own life, and also what's in my book, is to def- to always have an in- intrinsic um, locus of control for your own behavior, and essentially to always assume that you are the problem. So you always think, if something's going wrong, it is me. I'm doing something wrong. And it's very easy to blame other people. In fact, there's a huge psychological bias whereby people often attribute uh, other people's behaviors to how they are as a person. So if someone's being mean to you, you think they are a mean person. Whereas if you are behaving badly or you do something wrong, it's because you're tired or because you didn't sleep enough or because somebody else said something mean to you first. And if you always think, like even for simple things, I am the problem. I am doing something wrong. It will help you so much in life. Like just random example. I thought we um, 
like my, my girlfriend was ordering um, groceries and I'm not sure if she actually ended up doing it. So in the morning, I wanted to have breakfast and she was already off to work and th there was no Greek yogurt. So first thing I thought is, ah, she didn't order the Greek yogurt, damn it. So now I don't have breakfast. And then I was like, she's very, she's very capable. Most likely she did do it. And I was like, yeah, it's just in the freezer or it was the raspberries, I think in this case. But even with these simple things, if you just always assume I'm wrong, I'm doing something wrong, then the next step in your mind is going to be, okay, what am I doing wrong? Because if you're, as soon as you start thinking other people are a problem, you're not looking for solutions anymore. And with your clients, that is extremely applicable as well. Because if you think, oh, the client's the problem, you're not looking for solutions. You're not thinking, what can I do better? Another example with my social media, for example, recently did a post on um, uh, spinal flexion. And my take on that is actually, I think, very nuanced. Like I have an article on that. And in, in any case, the post, most people just read the one and two slides, first slide one and two. Basically, nobody read the full article, which is kind of the point of the post, promoting the full article. And I could think, okay, people are just stupid. But the main lesson I have for me is, okay, I just need to see this is how things are. And I need to rewrite the way I write posts. So I need to change the style of headlines because I'm going to be judged by the headline. Many people are not going to look any further than the headline. So I need to change that. And if you adopt your life strategy with this and everything, also with your clients, how am I phrasing this? What am I recommending exactly? Why are they not doing this? Is there a way I could make this easier? Is it clear? Are my instructions clear? Then you will get much, much further in life. So it's a massive kind of an awareness side of things. But I think awareness is a massive element in relation to life in general, but particularly with kind of fat loss or weight loss or muscle gain, whatever the goal is. And I had Luke Tullock on and Luke Tullock spoke about kind of awareness and the importance of self-awareness. But I don't think an awful lot of people have can take that kind of like two step backs to kind of like or take that side step to kind of say, hang on, am I at play here? Because they're running on empty, they're running on fumes, they're always busy, busy, busy. But is is that not is that what the problem is that the too many people are trying to run on fumes and too, too many people aren't can't bring that self-awareness to themselves? They blame everything else and blame other factors, blame the weather. Like it's easy for me to blame the weather right now for not going out for a walk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just it, it's not serving. It's um, it, it doesn't help you to to think any other thing than looking for the solution because the the, the physical reality is you have a problem, you want to fix it, and the only thing that helps is how are you thinking of how to solve that problem, right? Shifting the blame to someone else or uh, anything that's not a solution to the problem doesn't help you. Okay, and then you mentioned earlier about kind of like the 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 there was part psychological, part physiological in relation to the the aspect of of things can you explain that a little bit more why it's it's a combination of the two because i don't mm -hmm. think people only realize it's probably probably only think that's one rather than the two yeah so the most straightforward physical um side of hunger is that there is a, basically um, a, a series of gastric receptors stretch receptors inside your stomach that well quite literally um monitor the degree of pressure that is on the receptors. And the more pressure is on these stretch receptors inside the stomach, the more satiety signal there is to the brain. So if you are, even in research, when you inflate a balloon inside someone's stomach, like literally inflating a balloon, it signals the um, sensation of satiety. So it makes you not be hungry anymore because you're 
targeting those receptors. And that's also why larger food volumes, things like drinking enough water with meals, all of these things, they can help because they increase the amount of pressure on the um, receptors in your stomach, literally making you more full, therefore feeling more full. It's not a surprise in our language that we talk about feeling full because that is quite literally what is being registered, the fullness of the stomach. However, even though that side of hunger is very physical, when these signals reach the brain, there is a very elaborate interpretation process of these sensations that takes place. And for example, in one study, what they did is they gave people a milkshake and they described it, the exact same milkshake, as either um, a delightfully indulgent high-calorie milkshake. Like this puts Starbucks to shame. And the other people were told, this is a very lean, healthy milkshake, low in calories. And then the people that were told it's a very indulgent milkshake, they actually reported being more full. In, in even more extreme experiments, they have given people placebo breakfasts. Like Narudin has a couple of nice studies on this, where Narudin et al., where they give people a gel as a breakfast and they tell them it contains energy. And then in some cases, they actually put energy, carbohydrates, protein, and some stuff in there. In other people, there's essentially nothing in it. It's like 21 calories or something. It's basically just gelatin with flavoring agents. And telling people they're actually receiving a breakfast and the perception of people having breakfast, consuming something with energy can actually improve performance and reduce hunger just as much as actually having consumed energy and an actual breakfast. So the perception of having eaten, both for performance and for hunger, can be more important than what you actually consumed. The brain is mad. Um, that's that's yes. nice. Yeah. Um, but is that, again, is that kind of like that, that scarcity mode element in the brain of like not knowing where the next meal is coming from that's kind of trying to play tricks on it or what element of that, uh, what, what's that play? I think it's the way we evolved is very imperfect and we've mostly evolved to just seek out food and you know get our hands on food. So our mechanisms of how we um, signal satiety are very rudimentary and they're kind of indirect. We haven't evolved a big, um, like we basically just made a shortcut as we evolved as species and starvation no longer became the, the number one threat to our survival. Then we started having uh, rather indirect mechanisms of sensing whether we are full. So we, we still rely on that physical sensation, but in, ideally you would like to have kind of a macro meter inside your body, right? Like you just know, oh, I had 80 grams of yeah. protein now, like, oh, I need 20 grams more. And oh, I'm at 3,500 calories. That means oh, I'm bulking. I have only hundred left today. That would be nice, right? But we don't have that physical machinery. So what's happening is that the brain is kind of taking over some of these functions that are otherwise, we would think happen in terms of physical sensing, rather the brain is just estimating it because it's, well, the brain is very evolved and the brain can kind of do that um, in a way that's usually, you know, not too bad, but it leads us to um, make a lot of bad decisions. And it's also, the, the, the bright side of that is that it's very easy to fool because if we really just had this physical sensing mechanism and like a, a thermostat in our brain and a body fat set point and all these things, like it was all physical, then there wouldn't be much we can do. But the nice thing about our brain being very or relatively easy to deceive and trick 
with satiety signals and dieting things is that just by mindset changes and tricking our brain, we can make dramatic changes in our physique and body composition and health. Wow. Okay. And do you think as, as humans that we overcomplicate like nutrition and things like that, because there's so much information out there now is particularly in the last, well, particularly with the social media age that's out there. You don't know who to believe for one. You mm-hmm. go on TikTok and be told something is something and you can go on social media or on, on Instagram or go onto an article or the newspapers or whatever it may be. And it's, it's it's different things for every single person. Do you think that we overcomplicate things or is it kind of like a a cognitive bias drives our decisions a lot of the times when we're kind of taking the information from it? I think all of those things are issues, but one of the biggest problems, especially now that we have, is that people are not effectively filtering their information. So they're getting information from a lot of sources that are not reliable. And personally, I am merciless with how I filter my information because the one thing that you have um, that is scarce for humans and that is impossible to get more of is time. And your attention is also something that is very precious because uh, especially these days, we have very limited attention spans, or that's the idea at least. I'm not sure if it actually has decreased or it's just manifesting differently. In any case, yeah, your time and your attention are precious. And if you're getting information from bad sources and you know they are not reliable sources, you're not getting any information at all. So you're just getting an opinion, and maybe it's a logical argument where they can convince you very well, then it's great. But for the most part, if you're just getting somebody, a random person's opinion or some fact, you don't even know if it's true, then you're none the wiser. And the worst thing is that there's something called source amnesia in our brain, which means that we tend to remember the fact, but not where we heard it. So we don't know if it's true. And you, you heard something that was total BS, you heard it, you knew, okay, this person doesn't have a clue what they're talking about. But over time, you stop remembering the whole process and everything, but you do remember that line. And then it's like, okay, so it's carbohydrates that are making me fat, not calories. And that's how you end up with a lot of wrong uh, IDs. But how can people, because obviously there's like there's particular studies that are gold standard studies, if you're looking from an academic point of view, mm-hmm. but not everyone has that wherewithal or wants that wherewithal to be able to dissect that mm-hmm. so how would you navigate that if you were someone that hasn't necessarily come from that, that the academic background like you have and you were someone who is a parent at home with kids mm-hmm. and scrolling or whatever maybe how would you actually challenge that narrative of that information that you're you're dissecting that's a good question. And I think a lot of people in evidence-based fitness are always very quick to say, read the study, yes. do your own homework, and it's just not practical. So what I think what, pe- what most people should do that don't have a lot of time to you know, make this their profession or their, like, their number one hobby is they should kind of follow the, the top-down model of information, which means that information starts at the sciences. So we have the scientific researchers that literally do a new experiment. They get our new data. And they're interpreting that. They're experts in their field. They're doing it to the best possible manner. That's the idea, at least. And that information is then discussed by other scientists and the like. And then you you kind of drop down to people that can interpret scientific literature. So they read it. Other scientists, um, like people like me, that are posting about it on social media. That's like one level below the sciences. So, well, I do both. I also publish scientific research. But you can read my like public work, and that's one level below it. 
for some people, that's still too technical. Yeah. So that's for a lot of people. So then they want to basically be one level below that, people that follow me and maybe scientific research, maybe not. They follow people like me. And then they digest that information and in particular, the take-home messages that are applicable for the average individual. And then well, you can follow those people. And yeah, at that point, it becomes a lot about knowing a person's reputation and credibility and seeing if they are still referencing their material. I think that is one of the best markers that you can look for if you're following anyone. Are they saying, so you can reference the direct scientific studies, that is the best, but you can also reference individuals that do scientific research. And that's also very good because then, uh, for example, in uh, social science work, I'm not 100% up to date on all the latest studies, but I can say, oh, this is Kahneman's work. This is Daniel Gilbert's work. And then people can go to that person, that's the actual scientist, read their work, and that, the information would be in there. But it's still referenced, right? I'm not just making this up. Yeah, yeah. Like I'm, I'm, I'm giving a source. And that, that's one level below it, but you know that the people are still, there's still something, uh, there is still an actual source. And yeah, when you get below that level, kind of in the, in the information hierarchy, things become very muddy. So one of the biggest tips I would give is, you know, go by people who have good reputations and are citing their materials, whether it's persons or research or whatever, but they need to justify their arguments. If they're not doing that, they're just saying things as they are, not explaining it, then there's no point. And probably talking in def definitives as well, with genuine nutrition. Yes. That's, <laughs> yes. So that's, I think, also something that's very tricky where when you have to simplify information, you have to decide how am I going to make this more accessible and ac accessible where, without making it wrong? Because yeah. as a scientist, you're completely erring on the side of not making it wrong. But in the process, the way you write things kind of leaves out all the information. So for example, I wrote a review on rest intervals, which is one of which has been, I think, one of the turning points in the in bodybuilding sphere that made people realize okay, short rest intervals are not only not beneficial, they're actually detrimental. But at the time, I couldn't say that they're detrimental because the data weren't strong enough. So I had to like kind of talk around that and talk about may and might and this might be, and this is likely not the case, you know? But I couldn't say like, you guys are all wrong. It's long rest intervals that are best, not short ones. But it takes a long time for scientists to make any definitive statement. So as an influencer or a podcast host, and you're talking to say the average individual, that information is not super useful, kind of talking in code. So you have to make it more you know, applicable in a way that's useful for those individuals. And then you just have to know your audience and what they really want. Yeah, I normally kind of go with two words, it depends, and then just go. <laughs> What's yeah, that's next? also tricky, right? Because that's it's the right answer, but it doesn't really help. So you have yeah. to always somebody sometimes you 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 know, if you have to answer something in an Instagram comment, then it's like, there's just no space. So you, you say- There's not enough, yeah. <laughs> it, it, it just depends, right? You can't expect me to answer this in an Instagram comment. And some people are just looking for an argument anyway. So sometimes yeah. you can't help that either. I know it's sometimes when people are like, I know the majority of the people I would work with would be kind of yo-yo dieters to put them into a class. And one of the things is that why trying harder? doesn't mm -hmm. actually work and what method or what can you do rather than having to like try harder or push harder or just burning yourself out because you're probably already living 
a life that's kind of high stress already you're struggling to get sleep your your kids are acting up work deadlines are kicking your ass why trying harder doesn't always work when it comes to these sort of things yeah if you think about it if trying harder worked or if you just learned from experience without reflecting and without you know actively revising what you did then almost everybody would be successful at some point getting lean but what happens is they they yo-yo diet so maybe they get lean but they they default back to their original weight they gain back the fat that they lost and it's because our willpower doesn't actually change you can't really change your willpower so what you have to do is you have to change your mindset your environment and your habits your routines these kind of things and if you just think, oh, I failed, next time I'm going to try harder. For one, it has to be a very serious commitment that you make. And usually it's not the solution because you're, you're probably, presumably you're already trying and you're just going to try the exact same thing again. It failed before. Why is it not going to, why is it going to succeed now? This, you know, Einstein said, I think the definition of insanity is trying the same thing twice and expecting different results. That is really what a lot of people do. And I see it also in clients when they email me and they say, this went wrong, but you know, it's fine. I'm just telling you so that you know, but I'm going to try harder. It's not going to be an issue anymore. And I also tell my clients, I always tell my clients, okay, that's, it's great that you, you, know, you have the motivation, but we need to figure out why it went wrong and then figure out how we can prevent that from happening in the future. That's the real practical solution. It's not all about effort and motivation. In fact, the best diet, I would say, is the diet that you don't realize you're on. It's just a lifestyle. It's just habits. It's routines. And if you can set up your diet in that way, then you can be successful without it feeling like constant effort because nobody wants a life where they're constantly struggling with their weight. They just want to go about their lives and have mastered dieting essentially to the point that it's not a skill that's effortful anymore. It's just their lifestyle. And then you can stay lean without it feeling like a constant struggle. I think we found the same bite anyway for the episode by saying that the diet you should be on is one that you don't feel like you're on. I think that's literally bang on message with what I try to say. If it's like, I think a lot of people can feel or have this attachment that dieting means suffering. Mm-hmm. And they kind of yes. get attached to that element, but it's kind of like, well, the food's still in control. You're not in control of your actions. I love the fact that you kind of kind of said, well, that definition of insanity quote, which is used an awful lot, but it's also changing out with your habits, your environment, your the, the, the ecosystem, the, all these different things that aren't changed or aren't tweaked in any way. If they don't change, rarely anything else is going to change. So I think that's there's a big insight there for an awful lot of people. And I think someone's gonna that someone's gonna land for someone like that, but also some people are gonna get triggered by that because yeah. they, that be can't help everyone. Um I think there's a there's an interesting concept from economics that is very useful to know for people that are dieting and it's called bounded rationality. It means that we try to be rational but even at our best efforts, humans are not perfectly rational creatures. So we should realize that we have certain limitations on our rationality, on our willpower, on our self-control. And we, we can limit these to a large extent with different mindset, etc. But we are always you know, limited to some degree. We're not computers, we're not robots. And when you realize this, then the, the goal of trying harder is, is a bad goal because we don't want to try harder. We don't want to be more fatigued. We don't want to exert more effort. The goal should be to get better results without exerting more effort. Because if you're just going to rely on effort and sheer discipline and willpower, 
that's that's not bound to be successful and it's also not a great way to live no yeah but i think a lot of people do think it's like well i'm gonna push 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 it's like well a mm. car runs out of fuel eventually yeah um, we're not cars yep um in relation to meal plants because i think this mm. is one of those that some people sit on either side of the fence here when they're talking to people and like you get messages and dms and stuff kind of a meal plans like no but are meal plans useful or harmful for people when it comes to kind of weight loss or fat loss goals or mm -hmm. where do you sit on it so in terms of the scientific research it sits very strongly on one side of the fence and that's the, the pro meal plan camp Sci meal plans are so effective in scientific research that even the worst of the worst meal plans typically beat almost any other strategy. There was even a recent study from Bill Campbell's lab in Florida where they essentially tried to debunk the value of a meal plan by comparing a meal plan to flexible dieting. And I don't recall the exact details. I think they did equally well. So basically finding that even a worst uh, or not terribly great meal plan that was extremely rigid. Like they just told them you have to eat this, like the typical bro bodybuilding mentality of, you know, rice, chicken, broccoli, six times a day. That's what you're going to eat. Don't deviate from the plan. Like the old school coaches did to give their clients a meal plan. And it's like, you eat this or, you know, you're, you're a failure. And the other group was given flexible dieting rules with like a calorie budget and being told more, you know, calories matter, all those kind of things. And they did equally well. So one group, didn't know anything, had no idea what they were doing, but they, they had a meal plan. And the other group actually received a lot of counseling and education about calories, right mindset, etc. And they did equally well. So that just goes to show that a meal plan is so good that even a bad one is just already very helpful. And that's because planning and having a plan and knowing already what you're supposed to eat is so important because you don't have to make decisions when you're hungry. You don't have to make decisions at all. You know what you're going to have to eat. And then you know what you have to do for groceries. You know when you have to eat it. So you know when you need the groceries. You know when you need the meal done. You know that you can make food ahead of time. You can spend Sunday meal prepping. You have the food in your Tupperware. You come home when you're tired. You don't have to think about food. You just put the Tupperware in the, in the microwave, eat it, good. You're good to go. So that's the, the, the benefit of a meal plan. It provides consistently. It provides a plan, a guideline. It provides a lot of things and structure in your life that are super, super helpful, not just for your diet, but for everything. I think the only downside is that when people, like in that study, they're told, uh, this is it, it's either this or nothing, that's not very useful. And also, if you're providing your clients with meal plans, this is also why I typically teach my students not to provide meal plans from the start, you're not teaching them anything. Yeah. So it's going to be successful for that particular diet. But as soon as you, they lose you or they go off that diet, they, they have no idea anymore. They don't know why they're doing They just followed orders. And yeah. that's not very useful in the long run. So a meal plan is great, but the best meal plan is one that you constructed yourself based on your preferences, based on your liking and your experimentation of different foods that fits your budget, et cetera. There's so many factors that go into that, that really finding a meal plan that works for you is in large part the, the secret to fat loss. Like if there's like, what you really concretely have to do to get lean for a large part is finding like free recipes that you enjoy a lot that fit your budget that you like and you can eat like day in, day out. And if they are lean enough, that's it. That, that's it. You found it. Then you're just going to eat those foods and you're going to get lean. I think, it, I think 
sometimes there can be pushback on the whole thing of actually planning meals, right? Rather than meal plan, it's probably more so planning meals and having some sort of strategy for the week. Because I think mm -hmm. when people get overwhelmed, they generally are probably winging it in general and they try to do everything, but end up doing absolutely jack shit and end up mm -hmm. doing nothing. And that they're kind of wondering, why is this not changing? Why is nothing wondering? And they get impatient. But I think if PTs and stuff are giving out uh, meal plans, yes, they work to a point. But as you said, the education side of things, plus you can just go onto Google and you'll get a generic one that people are can probably charge a fortune for. So just being careful where people are getting the information, but planning meals is probably more in line with what's going to work. So that's really interesting. I had Bill on the, the, the podcast before and the, his mind fascinates me. Um, the amount of the, the research he's done, so which is amazing. One of the things that he spoke about or have spoken about previously is empty rewards. Mm -hmm. And it'd be interesting to see how they can actually help people to actually stick and adhere to their diet. And can you explain what an actual empty reward is first? Because I think this is going to interest a lot of people. So an empty reward is a kind of a play on the concept of empty calories, yeah. which is the idea that certain foods, they provide calories, but they don't actually give you any nutrients that you want. They don't, they don't satiate you. Like pure sugar or pure... Um, I mean, butter has some things that are good, but those things are mostly empty calories. Most junk food is, is largely empty calories. It's, it has calories, but nothing else. And empty rewards are kind of like that in that they are rewards that don't have calories. And they're actually very good in that sense because they can replace comfort eating. So what we see in research is that when people, like we talked about earlier, when people are tired, fatigued, hungry, they tend to uh, snack and they tend to comfort eat, like self-medicate, essentially, on usually high-calorie processed junk food, highly caloric food. Usually high-carb, high-fat, not high in protein, not high in fiber. So those are foods that are not conducive to fat loss because you're going to end up overeating on calories. And that's not effective to actually feel better. It's, it's not effective to solve the problem of the fatigue or the hunger. And it's also not satiating. So it's very, very transient short-term relief that doesn't actually help in terms of boosting your willpower or um, help you stick to your diet. And it, it also doesn't solve the problem. Like you, you still feel like crap after a few minutes again. So it's really ineffective. And you can replace that, that, that comfort eating with other things that do provide enjoyment and preferably longer enjoyment, but don't necessarily have calories. So it can be either like tea, coffee, carbonated diet sodas. There's some research that finds that sweeteners, for example, can actually improve diet adherence because they help you substitute high-calorie foods with low-calorie foods. And that's great, but you can even go a step further and go into like more psychological um, positive sources of enjoyment, like hanging out with friends, playing a video game, um, playing the guitar, if you like doing that. So anything that you like doing, anything that gives you, makes you feel good, uh, is usually something that also energizes you, boosts your willpower, because these things are all correlated in the mind. If you feel better, it's going to be easier to deal with stress. It's going to be easier to stick to your diet. So for many people, a big part of diet adherence is actually making sure that they don't get too, too much negative emotion, because at some point you essentially break and you start snacking, and you can't uh, stick to your diet anymore. So having these kind of pleasurable break activities or empty rewards, as I call them in the book, is super beneficial to keep your diet on track. 
I kind of call them soul foods, foods that are good for the soul. Because mm-hmm. um, mo- people are much happier people with chocolate and carbs in their life, so you don't need to cut them out. Yeah. Um, you've spoken about willpower. You mentioned willpower a lot since we came, came on. Mm-hmm. And can you boost your willpower? And is willpower finite? So will you can boost it, but it's not physically finite. Okay. What, what, what happens is willpower failure is essentially your mind shifting attention. Willpower failure is in large part the same as boredom. Okay. It just means that your, specifically the, the anterior cingulate cortex in your brain, perceives insufficient instant gratification, essentially, or the, it's low on positive affect, as researchers would call it. Basically, you don't feel good. What you're currently doing, what you're focusing your attention on, is not making you feel good. It's something you have to do, not something you want to do. And then what happens is your attention shifts to something in the environment that the brain thinks will provide more positive uh, feeling, more instant gratification. So that annoying red Facebook pop-up or uh, anything on your phone, uh, you know, alerts and foods. There's research showing that even the reward pathways in the brain, they light up more when we see those kind of uh, signs of instant gratification in our environment when we are fatigued. And that's, that's willpower failing. The shift from something you have to do to something you want to do. And there's nothing really that's draining, like the old Baumeister model of uh, ego depletion, willpower being like a muscle that has largely been debunked. It seems like it's like that because when you're doing one activity, there is a limit to how long you can focus on it, to how long you can exert willpower and just keep doing that activity or how long you can suffer hunger. So it seems like that that is the source of at some point you break and the willpower is gone. But it's not gone because you can do something else. You can still focus on that. You can still do that activity. It's very task specific and it's completely dependent on how much you enjoy doing it. That's why you can kind of instantly reboost your willpower by doing something else that you do enjoy doing. And if you alternate between something you don't like with something you, you do like, you can kind of keep reboosting your willpower and get your attention back to provide another, say, 90 minutes of focused work. You do something you like, 90 minutes focused work, you do something you like, etc. People too reliant on willpower to get them to where they want to go. Yes, I would say so. I think because like your the amount of willpower you have doing an activity that um, you um, you don't like doing is limited in the sense of like there is a certain amount of unhappiness anyone can tolerate. Yeah, and in in that sense, it, it is finite. Like. In practice, it, it will run out if you don't replenish it or you don't shift activity. And also the knowledge that it's just unpleasant means it's much better to prevent willpower depletion in the begin, to begin with than having to rely on it a lot. And it's much better to build habits and routines and the like that allow you to stick to your diet without it costing willpower rather than like you know the kind of uh, white-knuckle mindset of pushing through. And there's also research on this that finds that people like students, for example, have been found to be more successful when they, in their life goals, not just with their studies, but in their life goals in general, when they rely less on their willpower. So it's not the people, research finds, that, are, that have more willpower that are more successful in attaining their goals. It's the people that end up relying on their willpower less. They are more successful. Because it doesn't matter how much willpower you have. If someone else has very little, but they don't have to use it, they're going to be better off. Yeah, I like that idea of like that we have like a, a suffering or a pain threshold. It's kind of mm-hmm. like where we, we um, kind of choose the easiest option as much as we can. 
Exactly. So would you rather, maybe you can, maybe you can stomach the pain, but it's not a nice way to go about it. And it's probably going to affect, you know, whatever else you do afterwards. Or you can just, even if you're a total wuss, but you set up your life in such a way that you don't experience pain, then you're going to be more successful than the person that just, you know, white knuckles through the pain. I like that. I think that's an important thing is the next one is the next question is in relation to the kind of bad eating habits and how to change those. Because I think when people are trying to improve their, so the nutrition and the relationship with food in particular, they they go very extreme mm-hmm. and they're trying to eradicate everything. And then that whole willpower thing and that sentence that kind of comes in. So how can we actually edit or change those kind of bad eating habits that we may have um, okay. in relation to a variety of things? Like you can pick an example of a particular type of food if you want, but mm-hmm. I'll let you take it away from here. Yeah, bad, changing bad eating habits is, is precisely one of those things where people try to white knuckle it. And researchers distinguish between three methods by which you can change uh, a bad habit or get rid of a bad habit, break a bad habit, whatever you want to call it. And that the first one is what most people rely on, which is inhibition. It just means you know you have a habit to do something and your solution is you're just not going to do it, right? So you have the bad habit, for example, of whenever you're in front of the TV, you, you tend to snack. You, you're barely aware of it. You just, you're you're going to snack. Whatever's in front of you, you're going to eat it. And let's say you have that habit. And then what most people end up doing is, okay, so I want to break that habit. What I'm going to do is tell myself whenever I'm in front of the TV, I'm not going to snack on food. And that actually backfires in research because the the unconscious part of the subconscious part of our brain is very associative. So it doesn't have a logic. It just connects two things together, which is snacking and TV. So actually by thinking, it's called a negative implementation intention, thinking, I'm not going to snack when I'm in front of the TV. The subconscious part of your brain just knows watching TV, snacking. And that actually means that when you're in front of the TV, it triggers the association with snacking. So you're more likely to think, oh, oh, I could use some popcorn right now. Yeah. So it, it actually backfires. And then the other two strategies, which are much more successful to change a bad eating habit, are discontinuation and a modification of the habit. So discontinuation means that you are... the term is not ideal, I would say, but it means that you're kind of preventing the the association between the cue and the trigger behavior of the habit. So you're just preventing the uh, habit from taking place. In this case, it would mean like you you just don't watch TV, for example, if you know that you're going to snack in front of the TV. That's one way you can do it. You can remove the triggers from your life. But in this case, for example, I mean, it's not very feasible for a lot of people to just never watch TV anymore, right? So that's not really the solution most people are looking for. And research also finds that it's often very difficult to find what's triggering you, like what actually is a cue that makes you snack or do something undesirable with your diet. It can be unhappiness in general or stress, or it's not always very conscious in our brain what we like, okay, this is what made me feel bad. You often have to really reflect on it. And research also finds that keeping like even a journal of cues, if you think of, okay, I deviated from my diet, I always tell my clients, Okay, what exactly was the scenario? Like, reflect on this. Why did you deviate from your diet in this scenario? And then when you start thinking about it, it can become very obvious. And then you can start addressing that. Now, the the third and best method to change a habit is modifying the habit. Substitution is is formally called. And this is most effective because you you don't have to rely on just removing the trigger, which is not always under your control. And you also don't have to exert willpower. Rather, you're changing the habit. So what's not effective is trying to just 
eliminate the habit. That takes a long, long time in our brain. When there's an association formed between some type of cue from the environment and some behavior or any association in our brain, it takes a long time before that just dies off if you, if you don't use it. And this also with negative associations and stereotypes and the like, if you, it takes a long time before you eradicate those in, in people. That's also why it's so difficult and these policies and the like, uh, it's another issue, but uh, it's the same thing in our in our brain that it's very difficult to just kind of forget something, right? It's much easier to change it. In this case, it would mean that if you're in front of the TV, you know that you have the TV serves as a trigger for you to snack. Then what you can do is you can change what you snack on. So okay. and you can also change. Uh, even better could be something where you're not even um, you're just looking for enjoyment, and you can do something else entirely. This is also why the most successful strategies for addiction and the like are usually substitutes. For example, to stop smoking, we start consuming nicotine gum or nicotine patches. And gum is, I think, more successful because it's a, a behavior. So you can actually say like, oh, I want a cigarette. Oh, and instead of getting the cigarettes, you get the nicotine gum. Yeah. Whereas if you have the patch on, it's just, it's just the physical effect, but it doesn't substitute the action. And that's also with food choices. If you can consciously think about, you know, this is what happens. You know it's just a negative habit that you have. Just replace the food with, I don't know, tea or coffee or like in the book I have like a chapter on zero calorie snack options. You can make a lot of things that have very few calories and still taste quite well. You can also just have, you know, fruit or um, there are a lot more things you can have in terms of food that have very few calories and you can snack on without a lot of risk of becoming overweight from that. I mean, that, that's really, really helpful. And I think I would recommend anyone to get the book to have a look at those kind of calorie options, but also to to have a look at properly how to actually change a bad eating habit. Because I think a lot of people are probably not in their head saying, yeah, I eat majority of the time when I'm in front of the TV. But it's having that awareness again. It's that A word kind of coming in. Well, when are you actually eating? And what's mm -hmm. actually going on? Because I don't think enough people are checking in with themselves and saying, right, what need is actually not being met here? Am I lonely? Am I stressed? Am I anxious? And why or how did I learn that food is going to fix this for me when it hasn't really fixed it? It's probably numbing it temporarily. And you're trying to get that positive reinforcement loop grown again. And exactly. Yeah. So it, it's 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 trying to rectify and trying to it's not that you're a bad person for doing it. We're all human. We all snack at some stages in our lives. And that's right. The difference between kind of successful dieters and another ones is that they don't beat themselves up when they with the shame stick or a guilt stick that's the that's the one of the big differences mm -hmm. the the last one i'm going to talk about is in relation to the support and the role that has on in on weight loss journeys because i think this has this doesn't get spoken about enough mm -hmm. um in relation to how important the role of support is on weight loss journeys can you talk about that a little bit more yeah there is a lot of research that find that social support is very beneficial for everything in life including dietary adherence and it fosters also in terms of it even increases our motivation to do things um not just helping people keep you on track but it actually increases your motivation by fostering what's called relatedness in psychological sciences yeah. it makes you more connected to something it makes you part of your identity a part of your social group your social identity so if you are surrounded by people that lift and that eat healthy then you're going to make that more of your identity so it becomes you know, part of who you are. And that's very, very powerful in terms of motivation, because then when you're, you know, you want to eat a pizza and you have to decide, am I going to eat it or not? It's much more powerful to think this is not who I am. This is not who I want to be rather than just think, oh, it has too many calories. 
right? It's um, one is just a purely rational consideration, but it's easily thrown out the window by just being hungry enough. And the other is like a very fundamental thing, just like um, loyalty or you know family values, those kind of things. Like you don't break those easily. So when you can foster any kind of relatedness like that, and you get that social support for people to help you to to change your whole lifestyle, your beliefs, your value system, that is extremely powerful. Not to mention just the um, having someone in there that knows when you're tired and whatever, and you're like, hey, shall we get pizza? And they're like, no, like. You know, you were on a diet. You told me to look out for you. Don't do it. You know, this is not what you really want. Uh, you have your uh, food at home that you you can eat. Just we just eat that. That's fine. But then there's going to be bite back that can cause fraction as well. Bite back. Yeah, that can kind of cause. If say if your partner is saying, I want to, I want to, trying to get a pizza, and uh, you're trying to almost, and I'm going to put this wording in here. Mm-hmm. I'm being good. I'm on a diet. That language I was using, dieting world. Um, that there can be rows or arguments mm-hmm. between couples right. saying, I'm yeah, so it, it's really important um, who you're with and what yeah. kind of social support you have. Because, And especially from your partner and people that you spend a lot of time with, even if you don't have the same value system, you can enlist their support by just saying, these are my values. This is what I would like to do. Could you help me achieve that? And then when you're reaching out, it also usually helps make them help you because you're more vulnerable and they know that you're you're together achieving something now. Whether what often happens if you don't is that people see it as a competition and they see you being healthy as a threat to them. Yeah. So if you're like the person in the group of overweight people that's now start suddenly starting to diet, that makes everyone else feel bad about themselves. Yeah. And if they don't if they have the mindset that they would rather pull someone else down than lift themselves up, which is unfortunately for many people in society the case then yeah, they're going to feel bad about you doing something good. Even though if you, they would just, if you would ask them, like, is it a good thing to be healthier and um, you know, fitter? Then they would all say yes. But as soon as it happens to someone in their group, they're like, oh, it reflects poorly on me. They don't care. They don't care about what you're doing. That's the important thing. Many people feel like if they're in social situations and people are kind of front, like fit shaming, essentially, yeah. them then they feel like I'm doing something wrong and it has nothing to do with you. They feel bad about themselves because what you're doing provides a mirror to them and showing them, oh, I'm doing this wrong. When they see you eat healthily, they don't see you eating healthily. They see themselves eating unhealthily. I think that's going to hit home for an awful lot of people, unfortunately, because it is. is you, you particularly notice it, say, if you're out for, I know, like a previous group, that I used to hang around with and they're previous for a reason now. Those kind of comments will be happening. Why are you having that white, et cetera, et cetera. It is that mirror image. No one really gives a shit what you do most of the time. People mm-hmm. need to accept that. It's it's generally as, as, a, as a reflection, as, as you've eloquently put it, as a mirror of what they're not doing or what they potentially are doing as well. So like there's so much in there um, and I think it's, it's really, really useful. And I think that's a lot of it's going to land home for an awful lot of people. So thank you for so much for that. Where can people find out about your work? Where can people find out about the book? And where can people find out about you on social media? Uh, mostly active on Instagram, YouTube, and of course, my website, menohenselmans.com. I'm at menohenselmans on Instagram and on YouTube. And best way to get to know me is actually to subscribe to my email list. Like if you go to my website, you have like a um, first thing you'll see is a listed email course, which is a free course and provides you with a tour of my most popular contents. And you can kind of see if that's um, to your fancy. 
Awesome. Well, I'll put the, I'll put it, I'll put the link into the show notes and I'll put the link into the, for the book into the show notes as well, where people can purchase the book. But Mano, thank you so much for coming on. Really, really insightful. And thank you so much for doing it. My pleasure. Massive thank you to Menno for coming on to the podcast today. It was really, really insightful and to see how much the psychological aspects and how the brain works and all these. And that's tip. That's just the tipping point in relation to some of the information that it impacts on clients, our own psychological side of things. So if you're interested in Menno's book, The Science of Self-Control, I put the link into the show notes. If you're interested in talking to or working with or a PT looking for a course, I have put in the links to, to, to Menno's website as well. And if, last but not least, Wednesday is literally go, Wednesday is going to be the literally the last cutoff for the female fat loss program signups because the, the the amount of applications coming in has overwhelmed me. So Wednesday the fifth, close of business. Wednesday the fifth is the last day that you can sign up because I need to get everyone's packs over to them on the Thursday and the Friday. And the amount of people in the group has overwhelmed me, and I'm very very grateful for that. So if you're interested in working with me in the female fat loss program, check out the the show notes and click into the link and get you signed up it's one euro 70 per day for eight weeks you are not going to get a lower price and you're not going to get better mindset changes for any other price than that so i hope you guys have enjoyed the episode